At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Do you want to save money at the grocery store? Eat more organic, whole foods? Cultivate food security and feel more connected to the earth? If so, then growing your own food is a no-brainer. You wouldn't believe how many people come to me claiming that they can't grow their own food. They think they don't have enough space, that they're too busy, or that they simply don't have what it takes. Perhaps you've fallen for one of these gardening myths. If you think you can't grow food, or if you think the only food that you have access to is what you buy in the grocery store, I have a life-changing webinar that you need to see. It's free and will help you unearth your inner gardener. I've helped thousands of people just like you learn to grow their own food and I'm speaking from my own experience when I say that with the right knowledge in place, there is no such thing as a black thumb. With this webinar, you can begin making your garden dreams come true and start growing delicious, nutritious food for your family. Just text GARDEN to 44222 or go to IWantToGarden.com and you will receive our free webinar about the seven key factors you need to know to grow your own food. Remember, that's GARDEN to 44222 or IWantToGarden.com. You're listening to the Urban Farm Podcast, your partner in the Grow Your Own Food revolution. Whether you've just been introduced to urban farming or you're a lifelong advocate, we're sure you'll leave feeling more informed, equipped, and empowered to dig deeper into the soil of your local food economy. With you every step of the way, here's your host, Greg Peterson. Today on the Urban Farm Podcast, we have Whitney Cohen of Life Lab to talk about her experience with garden-based education. Whitney is a teacher, trainer, and author with a tremendous commitment and expertise in inquiry and place-based education, strategies for engaging diverse learners, school gardens, and the intersection between environmental education and public schools. She is the education director of Life Lab and a lecturer at UC Santa Cruz. Welcome to the show today, Whitney. Thanks so much for having me, Greg. Absolutely. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at now? I'd be happy to. Let's see. I This started for me really probably right out of college when I became an outdoor educator uh-huh. at a residential outdoor science school. And wow. at that time, I knew, you know, I knew that I loved being outside. I loved nature and I wanted to have a job working outdoors and with kids. And so I came to this place out in California called San Mateo Outdoor Education, where we taught kids out in the redwoods. And I would take fifth and sixth graders on hikes and then out to the tide pools. And they would stay for a week for five days. And uh, Oh, man, how come that wasn't wasn't available when I was a kid? It's a pretty amazing thing that we have going here in California. Uh Um, I I did it when I was in fifth grade, too. Uh, It's 
pretty pretty typical in fifth and sixth grades here in California. And so I was a teacher there for two years. I went by a nature name. I went by Cricket for those two years. And it was oh, a fun. really transformative experience for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was just incredible because I knew I loved, you know, the natural world. And what I discovered there is how much I loved sharing that with children. And, uh, and so from there, what I realized is my least favorite part of working there was Fridays. It was so hard for me to say goodbye to my group every Friday. Oh, and, the, wow. you know, and then on Monday, we'd start with a new group. And yeah. I realized I really wanted to have my class, a group of kids that I would work for, for one or more years and have them in, in a community, you know? Oh, yeah. So then I decided I wanted to become a teacher, which had not, I'd never even taken an education class in undergrad. That, oh, was, nice. not, that was not the path I was on. Uh, so Whitney, yeah. how old were you when you were teaching in the Redwoods? Let's see, that was, uh, well, I turned 21 out there. So oh. 21, 22, and Oh, 23. wow. Really, yeah. really formidable years. Yes, exactly. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. Especially, especially for me, because I met my husband there and my now my current husband. Nice. And many, many of my closest friends yeah. are from that time. Yeah. And so then I then I went back to school to get a degree to become a teacher. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then while this is kind of an amazing connection with Life Lab, while I was in school to become a teacher to get my credential and my master's in education, right. I had just one class in teaching science. And that class was taught by a lecturer from outside the university that year. And that was Robbie Jaffe, who was the founder of Life Lab. And so wow. uh, Robbie really shared with us, you know, it was just an overview of all science education. Yeah. So she shared with us the typical things that you see in classrooms like FOSS science or different, you know, science kits, science textbooks, et cetera. But she also really emphasized garden-based science and hands-on outdoor science education that you can do in schools through a school garden uh -huh. uh, because that's what she had founded in, in this organization, Life Lab. And right. so... I just, of course, coming right out of the, you know, the outdoor education world, this just kind of lit a fire under me. <laughs> I'll bet. I was so excited by that. And so right out of that school, right out of there, I became a middle school science teacher at Pescadero Middle School. Mm -hmm. And that's a, a very small, rural, very low income school here on the central coast of California. And that's where that dream came true, where I got my kids actually not just for one year, but for three years, because it's such a small school. I was the sixth, seventh, and eighth grade science teacher for the middle school. I was the only science teacher for the middle wow. school. Wow. And, uh, and so there I started a school garden uh -huh. because I wanted to bring my kids outdoors regularly and have an outdoor classroom where we could do earth and life science right there with earth and with life. And, uh -huh. And we had a great time out there together, and I spent five years at that school. Wow. And, uh, and then in last 2007... Day, la last day it broke your heart. The last day did break my heart. You're right about that. Yeah. Yeah. It was, that was a really important place for me, yeah. And I still, I'm actually still in touch with a lot of my past students and colleagues from there. And, nice. Uh, and then in 2007, I, my best friend was working here uh, at UC Santa Cruz on the campus farm, which has been there for 40, 40 plus years. And uh, oh my I, gosh. Loved, I loved where she worked. You know, I would walk up to meet her at the farm. And I remember walking the path to the farm and thinking, one day I'm going to work somewhere this beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> and sure enough, uh, I, was, I was actually leading a teacher workshop uh -huh. about something totally different, about supporting English language learners, but I was at a big conference, yep. and Life Lab was also at the conference um, as kind of a school garden support organization. Right. And 
I connected there with uh, Robbie and Gail, who, is, who had taught that class with her. And I let them know, you know, I took your class when I was in my master's program. I was really inspired and I became a teacher and I used a school garden and I've just loved implementing everything you taught me. And uh-huh. they basically said, you know, I'm so glad we're meeting you because we have this job opening. Our oh, nice. director of 17 years is retiring. Oh, my gosh. We're looking. We're looking to fill that spot. And yeah. uh, and I remember I called my husband from that conference. I didn't even wait till I got home. I <laughs> called on my lunch break and was like, what if we do this? What if I take this job? And, yeah. and so then in 2007, I joined up with Life Lab and I've been education there ever since. So I, I actually just remembered. I came into your office about a month ago. Yeah. That's yeah. how this all came to be, that this I got is, to be on this podcast with that, you. That's right. Okay, good. I, uh, I, I didn't connect Life Lab with the farm at Santa Cruz until you said that. So, yeah. What an, and you have an extraordinary place there. We do, and I can explain that a little bit. Um, so Life Lab is an independent nonprofit organization, uh-huh. and our focus is garden-based learning. So we have field trips for kids during the school year for kids right here in Santa Cruz County. We've got field trips for, on the school days. We've got summer camps on the summer days. And we have, and then we support our local school gardens. Uh-huh. Uh, we also do a lot of work nationally. We do trainings for educators who want to use gardens for, for learning. And yep. so we do a lot of school garden workshops and we publish curriculum to share activities and lesson plans with teachers and other educators who want to bring learning to life in the gardens. We're located on the UCSC farm, which is tremendously lucky and very rare that, a, that an independent nonprofit is located. We actually rent space on the UC Santa Cruz campus. So yeah. I think a lot of people come away and think, oh, that's a program of UCSC. We're actually not. Got it. Uh, we're our own nonprofit, but we have a really beautiful and fruitful partnership with UCSC because they allow us to bring the kids up and to see not only our garden space, but the big, beautiful farm that is yes. open to the public and that anyone who ever comes to Santa Cruz should come visit. And uh, and in exchange, we support them and their apprentices with things like classes on teaching and on public speaking and on garden-based oh, education. And so nice. we, kind of, we share resources really, really well, and we feel really lucky to be up there. Wow. Yes. Yeah. So paint a picture for us of the space. Yeah. Well, the overall farm is um, more than 20 acres. I don't even remember exactly. It's about 25 acres, but there's, you know, many, many varieties of apple trees, which are on my mind right now because it's fall and we're enjoying some amazing apples Apples. right now. Yeah. Uh, And then there's the down garden, which is hand cultivated. Then there's the field, which is tractor cultivated. And basically it's a big, beautiful farm where apprentices come and they learn about uh, agroecology and sustainable food systems. That's the UCSC farm. And then on the bottom kind of one and a quarter acre mm-hmm. of that farm, we Life Lab has what we call the garden classroom. And the garden classroom is where we run our programs for um, for our local kids, for Santa Cruz County kids. And right. so for our, you know, our field trips and our summer camps all happen there. And so that's a garden space that's really designed for children. Well, it's two audiences. It's for children and then also as a demonstration site for educators. And so we've got kind of the centerpiece is uh, we've got a zoo bed, which is this kind of spiral bed that's filled in with plants that all have animal names. Oh, nice. So kangaroo paw and bird of paradise and hens and chicks, you know, all these. Yes. They have little labels and that's the zoo bed with all the animals. 
And then we've got we've got an observational beehive where the kids Ooh. can actually open the door and see the bees behind oh, wow. plastic and We've got, of course, a worm bin, and right in the center, actually, next to the zoo bed, we've got a whole rot zone. So we have demonstration compost bins and worm bins. We've got chickens, which are every kid's favorite part, I think. Oh, my gosh, yes. Did you say a rot? We call it the rot zone. R-O-T. Yes. Nice. That's where, you know, a lot of school gardens and and home gardens will put our compost kind of in the far corner, which Mm -hmm. makes sense. Sometimes it smells and it's not necessarily beautiful, but we very intentionally put that right in the heart of our garden because so much of what we want to teach about is nutrient cycling and um, ecological principles, et cetera. And so we've got this kind of big focus on decomposition right in the heart of our garden. There's so much more I could tell you about our site. Uh, I don't know how much detail you want, but some of the kids' favorite, favorite parts are we've got a tunnel that kids can go in that's just grown over with a passion vine and thumbergia flowers and trumpet vine. And kids love that. I think kids love to have like a little hidey hole or secret spot that they Mm -hmm. can We have a big, we call it the bird's nest, but it's big enough that kids can sit inside it that's all woven together that kids really love. We've got a tree of tunes, which is a big old avocado tree uh-huh. where we put a bunch of musical instruments under the tree and kids can go in there and make oh. music. Uh, wow. And we've got a, a whole lot more. And actually on our website, there's a beautiful slideshows of all the different things that we have in the garden. Nice. Um, What's your website? And, oh, it's lifelab.org. L-I-F-E-L-A-B.org. Perfect. Yeah. Cool. You you mentioned a term that I want you to kind of t- uh, take it apart a little bit. Nutrient cycling. Why? What is it, and why is it so important? Yeah. Well, we we just really like. I'll say it kind of how we would say it to kids. We want we love for kids to understand that we can take things right off of our farm and right off of our plates, like our plant based food waste and uh-huh. any you know any greens greens or browns that we're pulling out when we're weeding beds and clearing areas. And we can actually keep those on our farm, and then by adding them to our compost, we can grab those nutrients and then keep mm. them on our farm and then feed those nutrients back to our new baby plants. And so we love to have kids, you know, if we, let's say we eat a snack together, then we always have them add their, any any food waste they have that yep. came from plants, they add it to the compost pile. And then what I love to do, and we like to do a lot is go to the finished compost, which is also right there in the rot zone, right. and have each kid take a little scoop full and find a plant out in the garden that looks like it needs a little love, and they can put it right at the base of that plant, and then we have them breathe on the plant, give it a little carbon dioxide, and they yep. say, thank you, green plant, and they kind of blow on the plant. <laughs> and, and nice. So we like to teach them about that, how we can actually take those nutrients from what looks like garbage or waste to yeah. kids and then actually use it to feed our plants. You know, one of the things I love about this is you're making the, you're, you're, there's a whole circle here. You're showing them the whole cycle. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I've, you know, I've often said, I think there's a real difference between knowing about something and knowing something. Yeah. And I think that a kid can know about, you know, a nutrient cycle or any, you know, any of these cycles, the water yep. cycle. But when they actually have their snack and then they put their apple core into the compost pile and then they look in there a month later and they see this, you know, decomposing apple core and then a few months later in this absolutely beautiful finished compost and then they go feed the roots of the apple tree with that compost, they know the nutrient cycle and they know that they can contribute to a really, to to ecological balance and to, yeah, yeah, to kind of an environmental solution. And there was... A space uphill from 
your offices where I saw a sign on some trees, some apple trees, and it says, please do not pick these. These are for the kids. Yep. <laughs> so they're actually, which was great, they're actually picking an apple off oh, of a yeah. tree. Oh, yeah. Those signs are up right now because our site is open to the public. Yeah. And so, you know, it, on occasion, an adult will come through with a bag and I can understand why. Here it is, a beautiful apple tree. And it's like, oh, no one's harvesting these. And uh, yeah. But we actually are saving those because as soon as kids come back to school, so that, uh-huh. you know, school here, school just started. Yep. And uh, so next week, they'll start coming up for field trips and they pick the apples. They press apple cider. We often do comparative oh, taste tests. Nice. We do all sorts of stuff. They pick corn, they pick and eat corn and then they pick um, flower corn. They have, we have dried flower corn and they grind it to make flour and then they press tortillas and they shake cream to make butter and wow. they, they actually harvest and taste all sorts of things. One thing we love to pick with them is we make six plant part burritos. So each kid will pick Ooh. a big a big lettuce leaf or it can even be a big spinach leaf. And then um, and then we gather, we go around the garden, we gather all six plant parts. So we get a root, like a beet or a carrot, and yep. we get a stem and a leaf and a flower. And so anyway, oh, nice. and we wash and chop and tear these things all together and everyone kind of puts a little bit, like a little bit of grated beet in their, yeah. in their lettuce leaf and a little broccoli floret. Anyway, yep. they get all six plant parts and they wrap the leaf around it and, uh, and then they just, you know, gobble it up. Yeah. And so I have to tell you something. As yeah. you shared about that, James, the my podcast editor here, uh-huh. his reaction was epic. It was like, <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's how the kids react, too. And yeah. I have to tell you that before I really got into gardening with kids, I did not quite believe that myself. That mm-hmm. I, really, I, I didn't really like vegetables growing up as a kid. And right. I really... I was one of those adults who thought, yeah, kids don't like vegetables, you know, kind of get mm-hmm. over it. And it's it's absolutely false. It's amazing to right. see on the garden when they harvest these things and yep. they're part of preparing them. Oh, yeah. Then when they eat it, they, I mean, they always, it's like, oh, where did you get these? Where can I get more of these? And what is this called? And they love it. And we yeah. take kids off the hook. We tell them, you don't have to finish everything. We hope you'll try everything, you know, um, but you don't have to finish it. And if you don't like it, you, you're even welcome to just, you know, give it back to the farm, spit it into the compost Put pile. Put it in the compost pile, yeah. And, but once they know they're off the hook on, in that way, they try things and then they go, wait, I didn't, these cherry tomatoes are amazing. This is like <laughs> candy, you know, yeah. and, and they, uh, they love it. They eat those six plant part wraps every time they gobble them down. There's no dressing or anything. Right. Yeah. Well, because we're counting on the flavor of the plants. Yes. Yeah. And I think we're counting on the flavor of the plants and the positive association, giving them a really yes. positive experience yeah. where that feels like a treat. Right. Yeah, yeah exactly. So I'm going to put you on the spot here. Yeah. Okay. I want, I want you to think about that one student that it you could tell just by the interaction, it changed their life. Yeah. You got one? Yeah, I got one. Tell us, please. <laughs> um, yeah, we had a student up at Life Lab who was there for a field trip. And when um, he was actually in my colleague John's group, but I got to witness this when he, uh, we went around, you know, in each group, they just arrived. And so they, each student was saying their names. And when it got to this student's turn, he didn't say anything. And then the girl right next to him said, oh, his name's Marco. He just came here from El Salvador and um, he hasn't spoken in school since he got here. He's been here two weeks and he hasn't said a word. And, you know, we saw that he had a, an aide with him, an instructional aide. And, uh-huh. and she nodded her head. You know, that's right, that he's um, he's not speaking. And he 
he knows how to speak. He speaks fluent Spanish, but he hasn't yet spoken. And, uh, and so no problem, you know, we continued, okay, yeah. thanks Marco. And we continued around the circle and then went out, out onto the farm and for our, you know, experiential field trip. And, uh, and at one point we were in the strawberry fields and, uh, and each kid got to bend down and look at the strawberries. And then each one found a red one and picked one. And John crouched down right next to Marco and he picked a strawberry and he held it up and he said, fresa, which is Spanish for strawberry. Yep. And Marco looked back at him and said, fresa. And, uh, and John, you know, smiled at him and he continued to ask him, you know, in Spanish, like, um, do you like strawberries? And anyway, and Marco started a conversation with him about the strawberries. And, and at that moment, we looked up above Marco's head and his aide had tears coming down her cheeks. And that was the first time she had heard his voice. And we realized this place and this, you know, hands-on experience is opening him up. And he, yeah. for the first time yet since he arrived in America, he feels safe and comfortable enough to participate verbally. And uh, that was, that's a moment I'll never forget. Yeah. I have to tell you, I got tears. <laughs> and that's why I do what I do. Mm. Is because that's the kind of difference that it makes for people. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, thanks for asking. Absolutely. So your gardens there, uh, how do they fit into the current school and educational landscape? Let's kind of start talking about how we get this from, you know, your life lab dirt rot space to the classroom. Mm -hmm. That's a great question. You know, we found a, a variety of, I would call them on-ramps for schools based on where their priorities are. Um, one key kind of on-ramp is science education. Uh -huh. And right now, I'll, I'll try to keep this simple, but there's a lot happening in public education right now. And one of the big changes happening is they're rolling out new content standards, which means what oh. the content teachers are required to teach is uh -huh. shifting. And in science, those new standards that have been adopted here in California and in many states, but not all states across the nation, are called next generation science standards. And oh. that's there's an exceptionally strong fit between the next generation science standards and garden-based learning. Because next generation science standards focus on students learning science by being scientists. So, oh, nice. Yeah, it's amazing. So they have these science and engineering practices, which are like the verbs of science. So things like um, asking questions and interpreting, analyzing and interpreting data yeah. and communicating your results, that kind of thing. That's actually part of the curriculum. And the idea is that everything you learn, you should learn it but through engaging in the practices. And that philosophy exactly mirrors the philosophy of Life Lab. It's actually why Life Lab is called Life Lab, because we see these gardens as living laboratories yeah. and the students are the scientists. And in you know, and so in a garden, if you want to take a next generation science approach to earth and life science, you need real earth and real life. And then you, yeah. you have that place where students can go out and actually investigate things, become curious, ask questions, design experiments, build models of things. And so there's just this incredible overlay with mm -hmm. what's happening in science education right now. Wow. Um, on top of that, uh -huh. and it sometimes feels separate, but I see this as all really integrated. Uh, 
many schools are really now directly trying to address the obesity epidemic. Mm. And so there's a focus on nutrition education. And of course, the garden, as we just talked about, is a great place to get kids excited about healthy foods, oh and particularly gosh, yes. fruits and vegetables. Yep. And so, so that's another on-ramp that we can take. You know, if schools really want to get their kids jazzed about healthy eating, let's say that in their in their cafeterias, they're shifting to a healthier, you know, to salad bars and healthy offerings, and then their uh -huh. kids aren't eating that food, which is pretty typical that they say, you know, well, we, we put out the salad bar, but the kids aren't eating aren't it. Eating it. Yeah. Um, then again, garden-based education is a great way to get kids jazzed about the foods that are showing up on their salad bars. Right. And there's research behind all of this. You know, there's great, great, you know, peer-reviewed articles showing that kids who garden actually eat better food. Um, yeah. They eat more fruits and vegetables. Um, so, so that's another great on-ramp. And, uh, and a third really kind of less tangible on-ramp, but I think equally important, is social-emotional learning. I'm There's sorry, is, is what? So, social-emotional learning. Oh, all right. There's a real movement now in schools to focus not only on academic learning, but also on social and emotional learning and yeah. personal development. And, mm -hmm. uh, and the garden is such a great place for that, for kids to learn about cooperation and working together oh, and to yes. feel a sense of accomplishment yeah. because they've nurtured something. And I mean, you should see a kid when they've, I'm sure you probably have, when they've, when they've planted their little bean seed and they've watered it. And then when that little bean seed pops, the, it pops through the soil, you know, they're my bean is being born and they'll get protective of it and they'll yep. be proud of it. And yep. all of those are critical life skills that, that we can foster in a school setting by involving kids in gardening. Yeah. Wow. So what are some of the key challenges to implementing these garden-based learnings in school? You know, I think the, the key challenge is that gardens take a tremendous amount of time and yeah. effort. Yeah. And um, you, will, you will never walk onto a school campus and gather the paid staff at that campus and say, you know, who has a bunch of spare time here? Yeah, exactly. But, you know, you're not going to see a lot of hands. I mean... Teachers are so overworked, and I, you know, speak for, I can speak firsthand on this. Yeah, it's just unbelievable the amount of work that a teacher is expected to do on any given day. Mm -hmm. And so, and the same goes for administrators and uh, and parent volunteers. Of course, are great, but they're of course moving with their kids through through the right. system, and so they graduate. And, yep. uh, and so, I think that one key challenge in all of this is just providing the kind of infrastructure support so that so that it can happen it just takes it takes it really takes a champion and and or a team and it's not always clear who that person would be right and, or those people would be and on top of that it takes this tremendous variety of the skill set is pretty you know pretty wide and mm -hmm. wild for a garden based educator because if you're going to be a garden teacher you've got to have your horticulture you know pretty right. well down so you can yep. grow this thing you've got it you probably want to have some good construction skills because you're going to be doing the fence and the irrigation and blah 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 but uh -huh. then of course you also need to be an educator and a teacher and know how to manage a group of 30 you know 6 year olds or etc and those right. are and then tie to the content standards and to the curriculum. And wow. so I think that's the key challenge is, is funding or finding other ways to, to hold great people in these positions when that position, it's not like um, classroom teacher or right. principal, you know, just something that every school knows they have and they have a budget for it. And so that's, I would say a key challenge. Yeah. I wonder what if I'm a, what if kind of guy, what, yeah. what if, Every school had their own own garden coordinator. 
That was their full-time job. Yeah, I mean, it would be incredible. Yeah. And, and I think what we have to take into account is just the context. You know, the schools, at least in our area, and I know this is typical across the country, they don't have much of anything anymore. Yeah. Like when I went to school, we I was in a public school, but we had a librarian and a yep. nurse, an art teacher. They don't have any of that. I know a lot of schools here this year in our county, they had to choose between a PE teacher or a science teacher. They don't get both. <laughs> and what? so- there's so much that's currently on the cutting room floor. This is know? me. This is me shaking my head in disgust. Yeah, yeah. No, it's 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 terrifying. Wow. Um, but it's what's happening with slashed school budgets, etc. Yeah. So there are, and I think we're you and I are going to get into it. But there are some solutions to this, and there are some great <laughs> models of getting uh, garden coordinators into schools. But but right. right now it's kind of choose your own adventure. There's not yeah. one clear model that this is how you do it. Everyone's kind of figuring it out for themselves. So school garden support organization, is that kind of what you're pointing at there? Yeah. So that's one one really exciting kind of trend that we're seeing nationally. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of regions across the country now have school garden support organizations. These are organizations, they're often nonprofits, but that's not necessarily true. That's not true of all of them. You know, right. some are government organizations, public health organizations, et cetera, but many are nonprofit organizations. Oh, and I guess some are through universities, but these are organizations that support multiple school gardens across their region. So there's things like real school gardens in Fort Worth, Texas, and they're also in various regions across the country, or community groundworks in Madison, Wisconsin, or City Sprouts in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Each of these are organizations that are supporting a lot of school gardens across their region. Uh -huh. And they're, they're fundraising, they're supporting with supplies, they're supporting with with professional development for teachers and educators and mm -hmm. many are also supporting school gardens by providing garden educators sometimes they're oh. they're americorps service members there's actually a branch of americorps now called food corps um, oh really which is, yeah which is all it's over 200 food corps service members which are a kind of americorps service member who are serving in schools to promote healthy food in schools and so some of these support organizations are placing food corps or other americorps service members in schools some uh -huh. are paying paying stipends to teachers for the extra work they're doing to be a garden coordinator some are paying garden coordinators wow. or paying, you know other other types of entities or individuals on contract to actually coordinate and teach in these school gardens mm -hmm. so the school garden support organizations are one really, really exciting trend I'm seeing because all of a sudden it becomes possible, it becomes feasible and possible and not daunting to any school in that region. It's like, oh, we can have a school garden because we have a lot of support coming in. It doesn't mean anymore that our homeroom teacher is going to have to stay until seven o'clock at night fixing the irrigation. Fixing, fixing the know? garden, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Cool. Any other yeah. any other ideas or things that you see coming down the road on that? Yeah, I think the key task at this point is kind of documenting and sharing the models that are out there. We've seen a lot of interesting models. Like we, there's some schools here on the central coast of California where they pay for a substitute to come in one day a week, and then that releases this teacher, the oh. classroom teacher, to be the garden coordinator. Nice. Um, so that just one day a week, this woman becomes a garden coordinator and she takes out every class, kinder through fifth. And so, you know, there's that model, there's the service member model. Mm -hmm. There's um, there's another organization here called the Living Classroom that's here in our area that has a big group of docents and they have a paid coordinator for the docents. Oh, and so yeah. they train the docent on 
on this lesson and then the docents you know kind of fan out to all of the schools and train and then teach the teach the lesson to all the kids and then they gather back the next week get trained on a new lesson and then fan out and share it with the kids so there are a lot of different models and i think what's missing is kind of a really cohesive national conversation where everybody gets to learn from each other and say oh that's how you're doing it you know in a couple of actually in berkeley unified and washington dc and Possibly other areas, I'm not sure, but uh-huh. definitely those two areas. They've passed a soda tax, and oh, yes. the soda tax was to fund a healthy schools initiative. And part of that healthy schools initiative was money for garden coordinators at the schools. Oh, nice! I mean, that's yeah. thrilling because then there's funding coming right into the district, and it's earmarked for that position, which gets at what you were saying. You know, what if every school could just have a garden coordinator? Right. Exactly. So. Is your leadership institute that you've got coming up in December addressing this? And tell us what that is. Yeah, I'm so excited about this. So with some, with uh, we partnered with the Whole Kids Foundation. And, oh, great! Um, we're thrilled that that they liked this idea enough to support it. Um, like they're like they're not going to like this great idea. Go ahead. <laughs> and the idea basically. You know, we, we teach workshops all across the country. So originally, we kind of came to them and said, well, what if you fund us to go to these different regions and teach our workshop across the country? And and they said, you know, that could be great. We're interested. But is that really, is that really definitely what you want? You know, and then, which was a great question. And I took a step back. We took a step back as a team at Life Lab and realized, you know, what we think would be even more powerful, what if we could bring the leaders from all of the regions here and we could both train, do a training on leading professional development for educators, because that's what we're really, that's our strong suit at Life Lab is leading great teacher workshops. Yep. And, uh, but then we could do some train the trainers on that. But also, then all of these groups would be in the room together and they could share their resources on, you know, how are you funding oh the school gosh, parks yes. across your region? And how, are, how do you do, for example, assessment, you know, impact assessment? Like there's every different organization is trying to figure out how do we do an evaluation of our programs and right. report, you know, report the impacts on our students? And we could share all of our best practices. And and how do what about building and building and maintaining multiple school gardens? You know, what systems have you developed for this? And so that's what we're going to do in December here in Santa Cruz. We're going to host the first. We hope it's the first annual. It's definitely the first. We hope it's annual. Yep. Um, school garden support organization. Institute and it's going to be a five-day institute and their travel and lodging is all funded paid for oh my gosh uh, and so we we actually it was an open application we had 75 organizations apply for just 10 spots oh my gosh it was a very difficult selection process but we've got um teams of two from each of 10 kind of fledgling or newer organizations organizations that have been around for doing this work for fewer than seven years and Mm -hmm. then we also invited in seven um, kind of all-star experts who have been doing this work for many, many years, most yeah. of them 15 or more years. And so all of us together, there are going to be 27 of us all together. And we're basically going to kind of do a train the trainers on educator workshops, but then also do a lot of kind of whole group and working group sessions where we're sharing questions and best practices around these key issues that come up for all of us, like sustainability and funding yeah. and assessment, et cetera. Yeah. And our goals are twofold. One is that everyone who comes to the Institute can share, get resources and ideas from each other to improve their practice. But yep. the other is that we can create some 
resources together, you know, kind of capitalize on the brain power in that room to create some resources that we can share back out to a national audience. I was going to say, you're going to document this really well and share that's, it, right? That's exactly what we want to do. And then yeah. we can promote it, you know, through the National School Garden Network. That's a real online network for these school garden support organizations. Yep. And then we can share back out to, for example, all the people who applied but couldn't come this time, mm -hmm. plus anyone else who's interested in it, a really kind of nice, clean, succinct documentation of some great best practices for, yeah. you know, for garden-based education. Wow. <sighs> wow. Yeah. Good work. Thank you. We're Good so work. excited about it. Oh my gosh. I, I, yeah. Wow. So <laughs> I'm going to shift on you and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure and what you learned from it. Great. <laughs> um, you know, I think a time that I failed, this really kind of connects to this, the vision for this institute and uh -huh. the, the reason that I'm so committed to this idea of school garden support organizations was when I was a teacher at Pescadero Middle School, I did not understand or anticipate the amount of work that mm. would be required for my school garden. And oh, so yes. I got really jazzed about mm -hmm. kind of the install, you know, yep. and I got tons of community support for the installation. And I had all these, it was a rural community. I had all these great farmers coming out to help, you know, prepare and amend the soil. And mm -hmm. I had all these great families help build the fence and build the beds. And, and I will say one really neat thing about that is it was a lot of, a lot of times it was families who were less involved in other volunteer opportunities at yep. the school. You know, you always often see like the same three or four moms and dads mm -hmm. who are coming in once a week to grade papers. And it was like a whole different set of families would come in when I said, I need help building a compost bin or putting <laughs> up a fence. And so that was great. But once that garden was built, it was just such a huge lift to maintain mm -hmm. it and to keep it growing. And I didn't. I really didn't anticipate that. And so what ended up happening is I would honestly say that many of my very best lessons, the most engaging, <laughs> exciting lessons happened out in that garden, uh -huh. but they were few and far between because because in between the weeds would grow up to my shoulders right. and I would get out there and go, I'm just totally overwhelmed by this. Yep, and exactly. I don't know what to do about it. And I think I'm going to go back in my classroom and pull out you know, that kit and do that thing that's already pre-planned and right. And so that that gave me pause, you know, to really understand. And then when I came to Life Lab, I really had to keep grappling with that question because I did not want to be in the position of training teachers to do something that I knew in my heart of hearts, you know, this is impossible, don't do it. And, right. so, and that's why it's been so important to me to train them. Not only these are great lessons to do out in the garden and, you know, here's how you can present it to kids, but also, and here are the systems that can support you in doing this so that you're not going to, you know, kill yourself trying to right. trying to make this garden stay alive while you're also teaching full time and yeah. prepping and grading and all the rest. Yeah. So maybe start small. I would say start small and and make a plan from the beginning. From the beginning, yeah. kind of take into account if we install this garden, what are what's it going to require each week, and who's going to do that? Yeah. And, and kind of have that plan and have those open eyes going in. And like we've talked about already, there are a lot of solutions. It's but it's a matter of recognizing that you're going to have that problem to solve. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, what do you consider your biggest success? <sighs> Let's see. I feel, you know. This is going to be kind of a, a little bit vague, <laughs> but I feel like our, well, I mentioned that I think what Life Lab does really well mm -hmm. is our 
teacher trainings, our professional development, our workshops, and then our curriculum. I think they're both really strong. And where I feel like we've had the most success is in both in how we implement those here in our garden classroom mm -hmm. and also in training other teachers. Um, how do I say this? I feel like the, the impact that I've seen that moves me the most is the social and emotional growth that yeah. is happening in the kids. And that's what I mentioned to you. You know, yeah. the story about Marco is a great example right. of that. But, well, I think I could best explain this through through an example. We work with a school called Amesti in Watsonville, which is just south of Santa Cruz here in California. And right. a teacher there named Margaret Rosa has described the effect that the school garden that we helped install at Amesti, the effect that it's had on her kids. And she said, you know, of course, it's a great outdoor classroom and it's made science so much more fun and nutrition is so engaging. And she said, but beyond all of that, mm -hmm. when the kids go out to that garden, they know that they are loved, that somebody loves them because they know this took a lot of work mm -hmm. and somebody did that work for us, you know, and wow. and I I absolutely believe that. And I see that, you know, in the kids, in how they interact with their garden coordinator there that and Margaret has described kids who specifically have grown up with with a lot of trauma in their lives. Yes. And the garden becomes a place of refuge for them and yep. a safe space for them and a place where they can be not be the bad kid, but actually be the helper who's taking care of watering the plants well. And so when you ask about success, I think there's, you know, there's the academic and the mm -hmm. changing eating habits, et cetera. But the part that gets me the most that really kind of pulls on my heart and that I really believe is the is so important is almost immeasurable, but it's the it's that love factor yeah. and that impact on the kids on their social and emotional well-being that I see happen. It's when Marco opens up. Yep. Wow. What drives you? Well, that. <laughs> yeah. What I, what I just described to you is really what drives me personally. And I see people in this movement who are driven you know, by all sorts of things. And I totally respect that, you know, like we're changing kids diets. And we're, for me, the what really drives me the most is letting kids know that we think they're worth it and that they deserve this, yeah. that they deserve to have a natural space to call their own and where they can feel part of a web of life that mm -hmm. they deserve to have healthy food and to have the exp positive experiences with those healthy foods. They deserve good, engaging science lessons that really you know, are enlivening and exciting. Yeah. And I think that's what motivates me is letting mm. kids know that, that they're valuable and that yeah. they deserve the best. Wow. So I'm all about education and I have to know, is there one book that has been influential for you in this process? Can I give you two? Sure. <laughs> Great. We get a bonus so, book today. An, an early on option written, I think in the 1970s or, or earlier is a, uh, the Pedagogy of the Oppressed by Paolo Frieri. And uh, that is the book that actually got me excited to become involved in education way back when, when yeah. I you know, first was getting into outdoor ed, et cetera. And, um, and I love that book because it really speaks to the potential of, it's, about, it's not about exactly what we teach, but how we teach. Mm -hmm. And it speaks to the potential of educators kind of to provide like what's the hidden curriculum and what can we teach people and what can they teach us just by how how we're engaging in teaching and uh, and there's a lot of revolutionary potential in there yeah. so I love what, that one what was the name of the book again it's called The Pedagogy of the Oppressed okay good all right yeah. and uh, and then a more recent book is called How Children Succeed 
by Ooh. Paul Tuff. And um, I love this book. There's, it's actually, there, there's two books by him that are on the same topic, but basically I think the first is why children succeed. And then mm-hmm. the second is how children succeed. Ah. And, um, and that's kind of what I was just talking about, about the social and emotional learning yep. that happens. It's about all of the factors besides the content that, that impact how well a kid might do in school. Yeah. So it's things like resilience or grit or optimism and um, mm-hmm. how, how important these factors are and then kind of what are the factors, why they're so important, and then how can we foster those in, in and out of the school system? What can yeah. we do to proactively help children develop things like resilience and grit? And I think it's just fascinating and beautiful book. Wow. Beautiful. What one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? Well, I would say something we say a lot in our Life Lab workshops, which is dream big and start small. And if you're if you're starting a school garden, mm-hmm. that's my piece of advice would be yeah. dream real big. Mm-hmm. All the things your kids are going to experience out there and all the amazing things you're going to grow, et cetera. But start small because honestly, those kids will get so much out of one tiny little bed with a couple of plants growing in it. You know, it yes. all starts there. And then once they've had that taste of, once your school has had that taste of success, you can keep expanding without without kind of burning out. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show and sharing your experience with us today, Whitney. It has been a treat getting to chat with you. Oh, absolutely. The pleasure has been all mine. Uh, thank you so much, Greg. Absolutely. So how can our listeners get a hold of you and Life Lab? Yeah. So Life Lab is on the web. We're at lifelab.org and we're connected right there. If you go to lifelab.org backslash join, you can see how to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, oh, Twitter, nice. etc. to your Perfect. heart's content. Perfect. Uh, and I'm on email at education at lifelab.org. Perfect. Thank you, thank you. And that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. Thank you. Do you want to save money at the grocery store, eat more organic whole foods, cultivate food security, and feel more connected to the earth? If so, then growing your own food is a no-brainer. You wouldn't believe how many people come to me claiming that they can't grow their own food. They think they don't have enough space, that they're too busy, or that they simply don't have what it takes. Perhaps you've fallen for one of these gardening myths. If you think you can't grow food, or if you think the only food that you have access to is what you buy in the grocery store, I have a life-changing webinar that you need to see. It's free and will help you unearth your inner gardener. I've helped thousands of people just like you learn to grow their own food, and I'm speaking from my own experience When I say that with the right knowledge in place, there is no such thing as a black thumb. With this webinar, you can begin making your garden dreams come true and start growing delicious, nutritious food for your family. Just text GARDEN to 44222 or go to IWantToGarden.com and you will receive our free webinar about the seven key factors you need to know to grow your own food. Remember, that's GARDEN to 44222 or IWantToGarden.com. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen three days a week for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org 
or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.